0: It's always good for physicians to actually see what the attorney is like in their wild and natural habitat. Don't slay the messenger here. You may not like what was found or what was charged, that sort of thing. We're just reporting it as we see it. Boys and girls, it's December. 2014. And Rick, we are here in lovely Las Vegas doing the Boot Camp 2 course for all those NPs, PAs, and various other people who are just
1: getting into emergency medicine. What do you think? Well, you know, it's also primary care physicians. We basically have created this course. This is the advanced emergency medicine boot camp course. It's the first time it's been put on. We have about 700 people reflecting the fact that there there's a a need for this and I, i'm just thrilled about how it's been going so far we have a wonderful faculty i don't want to get too much into the commercial but there will be another one of these in july of this year if you go onto our website ccme.org you'll see it and yes those of you who have no pas and nps and primary care doctors who haven't taken the original course that is in Uh, March. That's also here in Las Vegas, but Gregory, that's enough for the commercial.
0: All right. Right Well, let's thank a few people though. I'd like to thank all those who came to my uh, seminar on being an expert witness. We did that. Uh, both of them. Oh, it was more than that. But uh, I know that several of them were listeners and we should give them a shout out for wanting to improve their skills in this area. I think it was a it was a great adventure and they got to deal with some uh, wonderful attorneys who could put the fear of God in you if they got the chance. So uh, it's always good for physicians to actually see what the attorney is like in their in their wild and natural habitat. So this
1: was a course that you were involved in in Michigan? Yes. And you and doctors who wanted to improve their expert witnessing skills were tutored by attorneys? Well, there were some attorneys, myself,
0: and we actually had a very nice collection of folks who discussed this. But enough of that, as you say, we don't want just all commercials here. So let's move on quickly. Well, you don't? Oh, okay. yeah, all right. All, right. All, right. all right. Are we okay yeah. now? Okay, yeah, okay. We're going to start out today, Rick, with an article which appeared on Tiger Text, and it talks about the top seven traits of a compliant clinician. Now, what do we mean, compliant? Does that mean he's willing to take you out and pick up the check and all that kind of stuff? No.
1: That is a whole new word in the lexicon of medicine came in about, you know, 20 years ago. We have to get a compliance officer, which means, in essence, that we need to pay somebody to make sure that we're not committing any crimes.
0: Yeah, exactly. But you know what? Because the situation is the way it is out there, I think these suggestions are actually pretty good. So who is this compliant physician? And, and how would we describe him? Well, the first thing is he complies with the organizational standards for HIPAA compliance. Now, whether we want to deal with this or not, Rick, you and I are cynical about some of it, but every hospital has to file a compliance plan. It's fair that every group... Take their docs once a year or at some time interval through what's happening with compliance because everybody and their uncle is concerned about the release of information.
1: Well, you know, we've talked in the past about uh, photography in the, the emergency department. Right. And also, when you recredential, which is in every two years, it's I think that's the standard. Yes. Part of that recredentialing is for you to sign and acknowledge your willingness to comply with all of the hospital rules and regulations. And so they give you a sheaf of papers now that said, yes, I, you sign here. Yes, I, I'll be good boy. Yes, I'll do this. And and so that's often part of the. The hospital has an obligation to uh, alert its physicians to its its position on compliance, and the ER group may independently want to be on top of that. Particularly because we have so many opportunities to screw this up.
0: Yes, there's nobody in the hospital world who has more chances to blow compliance than the emergency department. We got people coming in, people going, doctors calling in, consultants calling in. What are you going to do with all this stuff? So, the second thing they suggest is the excellent compliant physician knows when to consult their organization's privacy official. That's this compliance officer you're talking about. And I think the emergency department, if if there are questions about sending out materials, who we're going to talk to, who's going to get this, their doctor is non-staff, yada, yada, yada. The real question here is, what do we do about this? Because in the emergency department, we work three quarters of the week, the hours, when nobody's in administration. You know, they're in administration 40 hours a week, pretty much. What are you going to do on Saturday night at midnight when you've got to send information some somewhere? Who do you check with? And I think that we've got to have some sort of policies in the department that allow us to not have to call that official
1: that night. Well, you know, even the smallest hospitals have some administrator on call. It may not be the, it's not likely to be the compliance officer. Cause right. These people n- need to know how to run the hospital. So there is this pecking order of uh, people you ought to be calling, and frankly, it, whoever's the administrator on duty would probably be the first guy I would call. And then if they know the answer, fine. If they want to connect you to the, their compliance person, fine. But at least you're going through the proper channels uh, to seek out this person and their guidance.
0: The next thing they point out is that... Uh, the excellent compliant physician fosters a culture of compliance and by that they're talking about immediately limits the sources for his sending out information or or contacting folks i think in general what they're talking about is you shouldn't be using your handheld device whatever that may be to be carrying on sending of information to other physicians, to somebody's private physician, to their cousin in Cleveland, that sort of thing. We need to limit the sources. We need to have a record of it. We need to have something where there's no chance of information, or <laughs> essentially no chance of information, getting out and about. So it really is a different compliance culture that they're talking about today than you and I grew up with in um, in, in medical school in the late 60s and 70s I, I don't ever think I heard one lecture or discussion about this except that the patient's information should be held private well, it's
1: I think it's much broader than that it's it's not just about uh, information it's a, an agreement that if you are going to be a Medicare, hospital in which you accept money from Medicare that you will be in compliance with all the laws that relate to the care of patients the billing and coding of patients, and the submission of bills to the feds, and, and the whole gamut of these things. Now, some of them you may not be personally involved with, and some of them you may be. And particularly, it's it's not uniform. The, the emergency department uh, medical director may have much more opportunities to screw this up than, you know, one of the rank-and-file doctors who is not involved with uh, some of these issues. I mean, And compliance is very broad. I mean, there is a Federal mandate that you use qualified translators when it is medically thought to be appropriate. And so, not only does your hospital have to provide qualified translators, which means that they have to test them, have they have to put in their file that they have been tested and found to be competent, that they know medical terminology, this is no longer the housekeeper, but the physicians need to know of their obligation to use a qualified medical translator when it is medically indicated. So it is, there's, it's, you need, technically, you need to know a whole bunch of stuff.
0: Well, they talk about the fact that, that we now need to be advocating for new technologies for the workplace which act proactively to protect and defend information.
1: Yeah, that's such a pain in the butt. You know, they're talking about these polarizers <laughs> that you put on your computer screen so that if you're not looking directly at it, nobody can, you know, if you look like five five degrees off the center, that nobody can view those, that you're changing your password every five minutes. It's a pain in the butt. Well, it's gone overboard, as you know, with
0: this, if the screen isn't touched in Seven minutes or eight minutes, everything drops off. They'll in uh, with your 15 passwords. Right, exactly. So this has become almost craziness at this point in time. But uh, they point out that it is a violation, and we have to be aware of it. Here's one that all of us understand maintains compliance with the usage of their personal mobile devices. Well, that's the, what you
1: were just kind of calling.: well, at. I- I- uh, exactly. Using your non secured you know landline your 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 telephones and those kinds of things to transmit medical information that doesn't you know that doesn't necessarily mean that this stuff stuff will be intercepted and it's it's kind of like the fourth tier of screwing up but you know you're supposed to use many of these hospital based wireless phone systems have security features which inhibit their being able to be tapped well they specifically
0: want you using the hospital system which of course is logged and monitored and timed you know as opposed to picking up the uh, phone off your hip and making the call to the orthopedist or whoever it is use a device which the hospital has encrypted is coded so we know what time You spoke to Dr. So-and-so. It's a matter of record and not, well, I think it was about 8 o'clock. Those phone systems stamp it electronically, and you know when certain things happened. The other thing is it goes the other direction, too. You send out information to Dr. Bones, the orthopod. Where's that going? Is it going to a phone that that he has registered with the hospital system that they know that they don't store, all this sort of thing?
1: Uh, You know, I don't know. I think that you can monitor the hospital's phones, but I don't think you can monitor the 700 cellular phones of all the members of the medical staff. I don't think it works that way.
0: Well, it's very interesting, uh, and, and they raise those issues if you're going to be sending x-rays to someone, if you're going to be sending EKGs, if you're going to be sending pictures of this or that, I mean, is it secure? Is it going someplace? After all, is this on the same phone that uh, the orthopods 15-year-old is going to look at, find the pictures and send them out? I, I don't know, but at least it's something to think about here when we're trying to protect and defend uh, patients were, uh patients
1: information well you know telemedicine is getting really big yes uh, now you can have a neurologist assess within minutes of whether this person's having a stroke or not kind of thing so and all of that stuff is obviously secured and it comes with the, the package of the software and the hardware and all of that other stuff. So I don't think any, we need to worry about that in particular. But I guess it does relate to using, using your own uh, devices and being careful what you're sending over them. Uh,
0: they also speak to the the sixth point they make is that we adhere to mobile device implementation best practices. and what
1: the I th- hell does that mean?
0: Well, I think this, again, goes back to what do you use to call whom, how is it logged, how is it filed, and can they go back and check all of these things?
1: I can't honestly get too excited about that part. But we are just the conduits.
0: Yes, we really are. And the last point they make is use secure texting to keep all communications HIPAA compliant. Now, when you think about it, uh, you and I have spent years just calling up on the phone to another hospital and saying we're going to transfer so and so. This said another thing. What this means to us, I mean, we know that hospital's phone number. They answer the phone. We know we're not talking randomness here. We're going to secure, if we fax things or send them in some way, they're going to go to a secure location and number. I'm not sure that there's much more that we need to do than that.
1: No, I would prefer to view this as, uh, yes, telephones and electronic transfer of information is one element of compliance, but I'm actually more interested in yeah uh, a much broader view of it as an example there's this business about the office of inspector general has slapped the hands of the um medicare because of its failure to uh, appropriately audit charts that are electronically generated for what they call cloning which is the cutting and pasting yes from one chart into the other uh with the attempt to suggest that that was originally done by you and it represents your work when it was actually somebody else's work. Uh, That stuff is considered to be a a no-no. And yet with electronic medical records, it is easier and easier and easier to do that. Uh, So, And there's also this issue about, frankly, upcoding. There was a great investigative report in the New York Times Uh, two years ago, where they were able to show that uh, the number of level five billings in emergency departments were soaring, literally soaring, and were able to link that, at least in some hospitals, to the installation of electronic medical records, which allowed all of these macros and this and that to create Records bigger than life, and then when the CEOs were asked about how come your your level fives went through the roof when you installed it, they they said, "Well, we're doing better charge capture now than we were before." uh, Or. The patients are sicker now than they were a, about a year ago when we saw yeah, them. You know. exa- well, uh, Rick, whether you know it
0: or not, the, the federal government has released this week some of their fraud investigations, and I don't like to talk about this publicly, but Michigan led the list
1: Congratulations
0: of, of all those people when they went back and said, you know, this is, this is probably fraudulent billing. We're number one at something, damn it. We may have cold, terrible winters. We may have uh, aging, rusting auto plants. But by God, we can upcode with the best of them. (laughs) And
1: we were number one. You and I remember times back when there were major, major, major attacks on um, multiple ER billing companies for upcoding, systematic upcoding. Remember it painfully. And, And the issue was that, yes, they were systematically upcoding. They were proven to systematically upcode. And all of the money that was paid out went to, not the billing company, it went to you. <laughs> yes, exactly. You were the one who was overpaid. So it was it was a, a very interesting. A lot of hospitals and ER groups were sweating it back then. Now, I think it's more difficult to do it now, but I see the rebirth of... Now, this is not... Th- this is presenting charting that makes it look like a level 5. So, you know, that is also fraudulent. It's just not upcoding. It's It's up-documenting. And when you look at the up-documenting, it may be that it links up to up-coding. But the fact of the matter is you cannot make a level 5 out of an ankle sprain. Doesn't, I don't care what kind of history and physical you did. An ankle sprain is an ankle sprain.
0: And, and And there's going to be nothing we're going to do to change there is an ethical and moral base here there is that that at some point in time you're not going to get five hundred bucks for a sore throat and, and and we're I don't know what we're going to do about this, but it but the feds are now looking more carefully. The problem is when the when the record is manufactured with the push of a button, uh you can make something which is a two bit nickel
1: dime disease. Look like something that's big time. Although to be to be straight, a level five is created by the amount of data that needs to be assimilated, the uh, treatment, multiple treatment options, the risks associated with those treatment options. Those are the major determinants. of Level five, not the fact that you did an 18-element family history, social history, view system. So that medical decision making is really the dr- driver of what the codes are and if you uh, so you know anyway what are we going to do some cases chief we've been behind cases we're way behind on cases
0: and i think our listeners like cases we have no guests today we have nobody coming in to preach from from on high so we're going to get down to some real emergency medicine cases now again don't slay the messenger here you may not like what was found or what was charged, that sort of thing. Uh, we're just reporting it as we see it, and then people can deal with it. But we had some, we've got some wonderful cases that talk about things that we've talked about on this show for the last couple of years, see if we can pick up any of these. First case, failure to recognize symptoms of occluded ventriculoperitoneal shunt and death. And death. Let me just tell you the story here. You're not going to like this. Residents, interns claim they relied on a report of a CT scan from an off-site person who then sort of reread the scan. But here's the problem, Rick. We're sitting in our emergency department now. A 30-year-old woman comes in who has a VP shunt. We know she has a VP shunt, and she has a headache nausea and vomiting before you do anything else what's the rule of diagnosis
1: seems to be an increased intracranial pressure oh my god done by some blockage of this little tube is it kinked is it got fibrin in it who knows what it is
0: well and here's the problem too that when they did the exam i mean nobody commented whether she had spontaneous venous pulsations whether she had papilledema whether she had any of this stuff So they send her for a CT, CT comes back as normal. That doesn't make the patient normal. We've got a reading of the CT as normal, and now, of course, she gets admitted into the hospital, the neurosurgeon is going to see her in the morning sort of thing.
1: That sounds strange.
0: Yeah, but we didn't have to wait till till morning because she increased her intracranial pressure more and and, uh, compressed her brain and she dropped dead. Well, in the hospital. Now, the second reading of the CT scan says, fluid accumulation, shunt in place, question functioning. That's the second reading on the scan. But I think, I think the point is, you and I aren't dumb. We don't actually read the films, but if the patient and the film don't go together, I think somebody's got to come in and take another look. And this is a very difficult case, in my opinion, to have taken somebody with a shunt, decreasing mental status, headache, nausea, vomiting, and just say, okay, we'll put her in bed till morning. I
1: well, think this is a difficult case. Well, the fact that the case was overread by somebody implies that maybe a resident read it in, initially. Can't
0: say that. That's not That's not in my information well, sphere. Well, you know...
1: Most cases are not overread unless you know the cases that were overread that I was aware of is at our hospital, which we had no residents, our radiologists would overread all nighthawk readings on c t scans mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes you would get called <laughs> at you know seven thirty or eight o'clock in the morning when they came in that there were some errors made by the i shouldn 't call them nighthawk that's kind of a trade name kind of thing Yes, you know it is. you know what i'm talking Off-site. about it's like it's like Kleenex. Yes, yes. But, but, so, but, the, but the other point of view is, and I was just talking to Diane Birnbaum about this today, it's like the idea that residents are reading films uh, without any supervision after hours in these universities, it's like, what's the story here? The emergency physicians have to have a, a faculty member in, the, in their department when they're seeing patients well, doesn't that mean that a radiologist needs to be supervising the reading of radiology films yeah, in it, after it,
0: hours? It is interesting that you and I have to do it on house officers. The and, others don't seem to. And
1: what if this is a mistake that was basically a reading from a resident? I mean, it, it would be really a matter of supervision. These are doctors in training.
0: Yes. And, and, and what happened in this case was, and this is the state of Florida, Not a good state to have to go to court in in general, as was pointed out by one of our recent uh, guests. But they thought that this ought to be worth a million bucks. Uh, That doesn't
1: sound like very much money.
0: Actually, it it doesn't sound uh, uh, very much at all, considering all of the things that happened. And, of course, again, the point I would make to to the listeners is, okay, so that reading's not right. The patient's not right. I'd still get the neurosurgeon in to see the patient that night. After all, they put a shunt into her. The patient's going downhill. What did we think was causing this problem? And uh, the, I, I well, think okay, the jury got it right in this case. I right think now.
1: there's a tendency to rely on technology rather than clinical judgment because clinical judgment is often gray, technology is more black and white, so it is given an unfair weight with regards to the assessment of patients when they say, well, the CAT scan doesn't show any appendicitis. Well, the the sensitivity for a CT scan in appendicitis is 95%. That means it misses 1 in 20.
0: At least, yes, and, and, and that's... On people who are good at reading it and do it every day. By the way, I can't believe how fortuitous it is that you've now rolled into our next case, which is. Are they,
1: are people are still suing for appendicitis.
0: Oh, failure to perform CT scan for a woman with abdominal pain, blamed for rupture of the appendix and need for hemicolectomy. Now.
1: Hemicolectomy?
0: Well that was a huge appendix well yeah yeah I think it was a I think it was a fairly big problem but this particular case had to do with a young woman had the pain and here's the part that you're not going to like and you understand why families get angry because they said you don't have appendicitis you can go home follow up with your doctor the family the plaintiff's family contacted her family physician and the emergency room each day after her discharge and said she was she was uh, not only not better, but was, was worse. On the fourth day after discharge, she returned to the emergency department, but they didn't have a lot of work to do at that point in time. She had frank, terrible peritonitis, and the repeat scan showed the uh, free pus. Now, uh, when you think about it, This isn't about doing a CT scan, in my opinion. This is about you called back the next day and said, I'm not better. What's the only reasonable response?
1: Come on in. Come on in. And I like the uh, opportunity to say you don't you don't need to call us to to come on in. You just if you're not doing better and things get worse or you're getting any nuisance, please come in immediately, and we'll we'll be happy to see you again.
0: If I only had the transcript between the discussion in the from the department and this family, I want to hear what they're saying. Are they sending the message? Well. You just have to sit around a while longer and get better, whatever it is. Now, in all truth, it wasn't just the ER involved in this case. It was also the family doctor who also didn't see the patient back. And why it took four days to get this patient seen, this well, this know, isn't
1: a good one. It's hard to conceive that an ER would get a phone call from a a, a, a the family of a patient was seen there yesterday with abdominal pain and it, 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 did she have a ct the prior, prior day no 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 okay so even if it w- so the idea is she didn't and, and i think that that can extrapolate to is a C- yeah, i don't even go there but is a ct becoming the standard of care for the evaluation of abdominal pain particularly lower abdominal pain
0: well, I, I certainly don't want to go there, and I don't think it is. But I think their problem was uh, what they told the patient to do and the fact that all of these things change. I, I still think it's the rule that if they still have an appendix, it's perfectly fair to say could be early inflammation of your appendix, but we're not ready. You're not a surgical candidate at this moment in time.
1: Well you're the one who determines the standard of care when you testify and yes. so basically you, you're not going to say that a c- CT is the standard of care and because a CT was not done that this was substandard I, care.
0: I am not going to say that. There's certainly people who did. I will I not use that. their pers- I will not use their names, but was uh, an
1: emergency physician?
0: Yes, yes sir. <laughs> and emergency physician I've opposed about 8 or 10 times. And well, that's it,
1: that's um, kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, although, to tell you the truth, this patient was messed up, you know. They were to have half their colon removed for a simple appendicitis kind of thing. It started out obviously simple. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I would honestly be kind of annoyed if it happened to a member of my family.
0: Well, it's interesting that the jury uh, came back against them, uh, and and basically, but the amount awarded. Against the emergency f- physicians was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Oh, geez! That's almost nothing.
1: That's why bother.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I can't. I can't tell you what the hospital settled for. Oh, speaking
1: of that. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, the November elections transpired. Yes. And the initiative in California to change the limits on pain and suffering was defeated by some uh, very interesting advertisements because that initiative also as I've mentioned in the past would have it would have just said fine The the limit on pain and suffering is two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but that was 25 years ago So just keep on adding the uh, cost of living increases and now we're up to uh, over a million dollars Which would have allowed attorneys to feel comfortable suing But they also kind of shot themselves in the foot by mandating that doctors get urine drug tests and I think that that might have crossed the line because I think doctors still have a certain stature in the community that's a, that says we're not on heroin, we're not druggies, we're not on methamphetamines while we're working.
0: Right, right, exactly. However, you're viewed as the, the sort of the criminal in this in this procedure. Um, here, we've got some great cases. I'll tell you. Here's a uh, here's one were a young woman seen in an emergency room for methadone overdose from her methadone prescription from her pain clinic. And she takes it chronically, has neck pain, has had problems with other prescription drugs. She was sent home after treatment and with instructions to continue medications because they the, as they went through this history, they thought maybe she'd taken too much drug They went over the drugs with her again, said, this is what it ought to be. And there was family involved. And now, uh, four days later, defendant comes back in again and, uh, and says she was, quote unquote, was taking her medications. Unfortunately, she went on and died. And there was a confidential settlement with, I think it was her own physician and a treatment center. But they let the emergency docs off the hook. What
1: is the allegation here?
0: Well, the allegation was the emergency doc should have told her to take more, take mo- no more medication. Now, the counter to that is this is a woman with chronic pain. If she takes no more medication at any time, is that realistic? Family had, had mentioned the fact that she had some illegally obtained Vicodin tablets as well as her methadone. And the emergency doctors could not have foreseen that. Family was regulating her medications. I mean, I think the emergency docs sort of did what they could in that case.
1: And uh, what was the outcome here?
0: Well The outcome is the emergency docs got off the hook. Zero dollars awarded against emergency medicine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, her, her, there was a settlement with the pain management doctor who was handling her. But I think that these kinds of cases are remarkably difficult to know exactly what to do when you're the emergency doc not following someone over a period of time and they've been brought around they're functioning as they usually function. What are you going to do in that case, right?
1: Well, you know, I don't claim any expertise on the management of chronic pain uh, kind of thing, you know. Nope. And uh, maybe a phone call to the pain doctor would have been an interesting thing to do although you know what's the likelihood of getting a hold of the pain doctor after hours and and the like but it would have been interesting to know had that effort been made I think that would have been a reasonable effort to make the, uh, the call given the fact that I don't think that we're expertise uh, we have expertise at that I think that it's reasonable to say okay back off you may have taken too much but um, I still would have liked to have had the pain doctor know about the situation kind of thing, get a little follow-up um, uh, visit with the patient. And so, it, you know, the, the ER doctor did get named. That doesn't mean that, you know, they are necessarily culpable and the idea is to throw out the net. But uh, th- this is not certainly my cup of tea. Yep.
0: Well, I, you know, I think that uh, thinking about plaintiff's attorney's ideas here, they could not have not included the emergency docs because they could be charged with legal malpractice because everybody else would dump on them and try the empty chair and say, if only the emergency doc had done X, Y, or Z. Well, the the emergency uh, physicians, the experts who appeared, were fairly strong for the emergency docs that, you know, this is a situation we see every day.
1: What are you going to do? I got a case for you. I just saw this uh, recently where a blogger asserts that his family member was treated in such a way that it represented malpractice. And apparently there was quite a nasty outcome. And the hospital tried to get a restraining order to stop the blogger from talking about this case and accusing the hospital of committing malpractice because it sounded like that you know you were besmirching the hospital this has not been you know adjudicated right and so they tried to get a restraining order to to do this and and so there was this issue about free speech versus i guess making assertions uh, that the hospital did bad things when it's not clear that that was the case yes
0: but you know in sullivan v versus new york times which is the classic First Amendment case on this issue. You don't have to be factually right on everything. And this was the New York Times that published this, this piece. Were they factually right? No. But there was, there was pressure to, to publish. They got some of the stuff right, not all of the stuff right. You know, it, when we start shutting down all complainers, we're going to have a problem, Rick. Here's the other thing. It's a blogger. Everybody knows that half the stuff out there is crap. I mean, the hospital says it besmirches them. It does this and that. You know what? It is what it is. And I don't think that having a few people carrying on these conversations, I don't think we should be stopping it. After all, he's having those conversations with his milkman, with his mechanic, with his dentist, with his friends. Because he put it on a blog, are we going to stop that?
1: Well, you know the answer here. What, Where do we draw the line between libel and uh, is this person libeling the hospital?
0: Well, the, I think where the line is drawn is if we look at the uh, yelling fire... In a crowded theater case that was real that that uh, exercise of reckless speech put lives in danger it's hard to make you know, at that moment in time and in fact there's just been another recent case on this you can't do it in that situation but i think it's hard to state that they're calling into question that hospital actually puts other people's uh, immediate life in danger And the the answer to speech is more speech. The hospital can get on the blog, if they'd like, and say, I'm sorry, you're factually inaccurate in the following areas. And let us set the record straight. Now, you don't want to play that game all the time, but, you know, I'm pretty much a libertarian. I don't want to see us shutting down criticism as unreasonable as some of it might be I think we have to let this stuff go on. Okay. All right? All right. That or, or you can be the Chinese and beat them all up and shut down websites and stuff. But, I mean, I think we'd rather have a, a more open discussion. But, but you've raised an interesting question. What if they are decided to list on their blog how to build roadside explosive devices? Where does that, where does that limit come and I think I think that's a harder question. Uh, that's probably a harder question. But there are people who are doing it, Rick. Uh, we we don't. One thing about risk management monthly, we can't solve all the world's problems. It's just, it's just one of those things. All righty, I've got. Uh, oh God, we have so many good cases here. Here's one that everybody has seen or portions of it. And it's a problem. This is a case on failure to note signs of sexual abuse in a seven-year-old girl during treatment for urinary tract infection. Eleven months pass before uh, the abuse really blows up. And of course, the claim of the one parent is you should have, emergency doctors, known that most seven-year-old girls don't have urinary tract infections. Uh, You know, there's got to be something that precipitated this. No previous history, no renal disease, no developmental problems. So why is she in with a urinary tract infection? And there was some suspicion by one of the nurses that could there have been a contusion on the vulva and that sort of thing. What in that particular case should the emergency department have done? And I think this is a very tough call case because you were going to see children with some urinary tract infections, do we go through a litany of questions? Who brought them in? Had she just had the weekend with the father or the father's brother, I think, is well, involved in this? I think
1: this is probably an example of where they're summarizing a case, but they're not giving all of the nuanced information because... If there's a nurse concerned about uh, noting some uh, potential injury down there, though, you know that makes it a little different, because I think that you know I think a seven-year-old girl is allowed to have a urinary tract infection without you know the police being called in.
0: Well, it, it, let me give you the good news here: the jury found f- in favor of the emergency doc that this was not negligence. However, there was testimony by an emergency physician, MD, that every seven-year-old Gets, gets investigated for child abuse.
1: Man, that's strange.
0: And it was a, I think it's the kind of thing that would make us all just shiver to think that, uh, that we would be held at that level. That's, that's the standard of care.
1: What about a 13-year-old girl? Any minor who has a UTI would then be extrapolated here. We did a paper in the abstracts about a month ago. I think it was from uh, uh, Holland, Yes, where they developed a program whereby any, any parent who came in who was intoxicated, who was involved in domestic violence or suspected domestic violence, or similar kinds of things which may reflect on the care of the children, they developed a voluntary program where those children, parents were set up an appointment with a pediatric kind of so, so social kind of thing that would then try to ascertain what the environment was in which this child was living. Uh, and they also were, if you didn't go voluntarily, they had a thing, well, we, we, we're gonna, we, can, we can make you go kind of thing. So what they determined was that a substantial subset of children of domestically abused women or intoxicated parents were being inadequately cared for. However, one of it, it, it there was a it was a little circular because they claimed that a child witnessing an altercation be, between their parents was de facto improper child rearing or, or to the, that's uh, right to that effect
0: abuse or neglect in some way, shape, or form. Yes, right.
1: But it was interesting because it does make some sense that if a woman is coming in who's been battered you wonder what is it what is it like in the in the family in terms of what is it or what are these children being exposed to witnessing those kinds of things right now i don't know that that would get a lot of traction in the united states of america right but it, it did they they found multiple cases that they felt were justified by this policy in the er well, any take home from that what do you think we ought to do well you know i'm not so sure because I'm, I'm really not sure. I don't know that there is a precedent in this country where a battered woman's children are basically subject to surveillance in terms of what their home life is like.
0: Right. Exa-
1: exactly. We haven't gone to that point
0: where we say de facto, uh, res ipse, those children Uh, need to be considered battered at that moment in time, or at least traumatized. Traumatized. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. All right, next case, and you will like this one. It did not come from emergency medicine, but it relates to emergency medicine in, actually, the neurologist was the one who was sued on this case. But it had to do with instructions given to a family when he sent them home from their office it's no different than sending them home from the emergency department and this is failure to take proper precautions for a woman at high risk for falls now mm. if you look at why elderly people die in this country falls is
1: pretty high on the list you know it's really interesting i know a an elderly physician mentally as sharp as can be but he's in his late 80s. And um, he now walks with a walker. And he told me, you know, one of my greatest fears is the fear of falling. Uh, and you can envision because he's not as steady as, as he used to be. And things like, you know, getting into the bathtub become a challenge. And you're right, falls are nasty. There is the, the mortality, the one-year mortality after a hip fracture, I don't recall the number, but when I did see it, it was like, wow, this is a potentially lethal injury, a hip fracture.
0: Absolutely. Because it's not just the healing of that hip. It's it's all the general trauma to the body that goes with it. Failure to mend, uh, infection, all the things that can go with it.
1: This is a lot of stress to an old person's body. Well, plus then there's this issue about them being at at a fall risk. And the hospitals are Mandated now to assess all of these people for fall risks. Uh, I'm not so sure there's a lot of great ways to do that, but you you see in the literature multiple algorithms to try to determine whether people are at f- risk. Well,
0: let's falling. look at the outcome of this case because he sees the patient in his office, the released to the family, the family understands the patient has a neurologic condition. So the question is. Shouldn't it be uh, on the part of the reasonable family to figure out she might fall? Well, what happened? She went home and within, uh, I think it was within a few days, took a header, uh, gets a subdural. And what's the usual outcome in subdurals and in 90-year-olds, Rick?
1: They don't do well.
0: They don't do don't well. Don't do well. Well, actually, most people with subdurals don't do well, but she's dead. So the real question is, did he have an obligation to involve visiting nurses to start a, a falls protocol, all that sort of thing? On this patient, now, this is an urologist, he's running an office, but I would have to think that the same logic would be projected onto an emergency doctor who's sending a 90 year, home, uh, 90 year old home. Um, and uh, the this was a This is a verdict against the physician for not a lot of money, $175,000. But uh, she's a 90-year-old, not working, no dependents, all that sort of thing. I can see where they came up with that number. But I think this extends to us. You know, in in a lot of our emergency departments, they have uh, fall protocols or people you suspect might be at risk. You get to fill out a slip and turn that in. And the next day, that service, which is mostly run by nurses, will contact the family, do a home visit, set various things up. All I'm saying is it's starting to project a standard of care when you have a patient who you predict is a fall risk.
1: Well, you know, that's tough because I think most 90-year-olds are are at substantial risk of falling. I think probably most 85-year-olds are a substantial risk of falling. They come in it with that risk. They're going to leave with that risk. What if they, you know, have come in with something that's unrelated to falling? They've got some flu-like illness. They've got, you know, a, a nosebleed, something like that. Are you required then to do a comprehensive geriatric assessment uh, of these folks? I don't think that that is the standard of care. I know that there are these geriatric ERs that have certain thresholds by which they do get people involved to look at the uh, home situation and the caregiver situations. But that's not the standard in the community ERs. The The geriatric emergency department is,
0: I, I've never understood this phrase, all of the are geriatric emergency departments. We all see predominantly older people these days. I, I don't know of an emergency department that doesn't see geriatric patients.
1: Well, you know, I, I I did make a crack or two that didn't go down well with some of our colleagues about I'd like every bed to be soft and have a and I like every bed to have warm uh, room to have a warm lighting and I like every bed to have a call button that was easily gotten to and I like every bed in the yard ER to be able to have room for family and etc 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 the things that the mechanical things that are brought into these geriatric ERs but the fact of the matter too is it's not just the mechanical a- aspects it's also the service aspects and, you know right. nurses are trained to try to pick up those people who are you know having some issues at home right which are our nurses may not be kind of so they so I was a little cavalier uh, <laughs> about that.
0: And did you hear about that, Rick? Yes, sure. I yes, yes, I did. Yes, I, I understand that happens. I've got a chiropractor case, and, and uh, th- this is just thrown in for amusement. A chiropractor consensual sexual contact with a woman during chiropractic treatments uh, over a long period of time. Now... <laughs> The jury did find the chiropractor guilty of taking advantage of a depressed, lonely woman. But it was interesting. They awarded her $10,000. When you think about it, he probably couldn't have purchased hookers for that much money. It was a bargain. It was a bargain. (laughs) And, you know, per ejaculation, this may have been a a, a great... (laughs) You
1: think I got letters about the uh, geriatric ER. Yeah, yeah, uh... yeah.
0: Okay, well, we're going here. All right, let let me get my next case. God, this is a month for cases. Failure to perform tests for cardiac enzymes, troponin levels for a man with stomach
1: pain. Oh, geez.
0: Death a few days later. And so before we find out what happened here, let's get into some facts. This is a 40-year-old who was doing some work around the house and went to the emergency department claiming a stomach discomfort. Now, where that stomach discomfort exactly is, where does the, the, the chest end and the stomach end? the abdomen begin somewhere around the diaphragm which as I remember was is like two or three little layers thick and there are nerves that go above and below it so uh, anyway while he's there there was no testing for cardiac enzymes (laughs) but interesting there was an EKG run which was non-specific so uh, and he responded to what would be the one thing someone might give to a patient like this to see if he had
1: stomach pain. I did him a GI That's exactly what happened. <laughs> you know, uh, actually, it's kind of interesting. As soon as you say the word nonspecific, our friend Amo will, will say a lot of the stuff that's nonspecific is specific.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Well, the other thing he points out is n- not being able to be diagnosable doesn't mean it's normal it w- didn't say normal EKG. The other thing is, if you believe it was related to his heart, the doing of one EKG, uh, do, do we have any evidence that that rules it in or rules it out? I, I think that, that that kind of thinking is 1950s well, you know, thinking.
1: I think also that some people think that there is normal EKG, nonspecific EKG, and abnormal. Right. The I think a more accurate interpretation of that would be there are normal ekgs and there are abnormal ekgs now that abnormality could be of no consequence but it's not a normal ekg
0: well the uh the original chart by the way he had been having some quote unquote it says on the on the thing stomach flu and uh, because There's
1: no such thing as stomach flu.
0: i understand that but that's what was on the chart and he said that's why he had that feeling in his stomach and around his around his uh, epigastric well, you know, region for two days. I really
1: don't like to take the position that everybody who has pain in their belly needs a, or discomfort in their belly needs an EKG. Right. I, you know, I just I just don't want to go there. I think that there is some ability to make some differentiation. Is it a gallbladder? Does it hurt under the right subcostal area when you take a deep breath? You know, kind of thing. Right, right. It, I, I, they don't need... You know, people say, oh, yes, they do need it. I, I, I think we, we overdo that
0: yeah, stuff. Yeah, we way overdo it. Unfortunately for this physician. It wasn't overdone. It wasn't overdone. <laughs> it was underdone. They came back with a $4 million award in a state which has just about the lowest costs in malpractice of any state in the United States. Like Missouri. You know? Alabama. And uh, pretty much in Alabama, you got to leave a knife in the body. For them to uh, convict you. But uh, this did not go well. And, uh, ah.
1: Well, isn't this one of these kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking things? Well, you should have done it. Uh,
0: well, the, the the question is if you're going to wander into this thing, yeah,
1: why? I, I guess that's true. See, why that's the problem. EKG? Why do you do EKG? an EKG? Are you looking for pericarditis or something like right, that. Right, right. You know?
0: Exactly. Not really. It, not really. We're back to one of our other old issues. And remember, we've talked in the past, Rick, about duty to third parties. We said there were two types of third parties. There's known third parties. That's when the guy in your department says, I'm going to kill Jimmy Jones. And you have an obligation to inform the police that that threat has been made, credible threat. And then there's predicted but unknown or unnamed third parties. And that's where this one comes in. Man's in an emergency room and was given, and I don't vomit when you hear this, because I know your feelings on this, was given Toradol and Robaxin while in the emergency department. For, that doctor
1: should have been sued.
0: Yes. <laughs> I don't care what the outcome is. Just by his choice of drugs. Exactly. Right, 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 exactly. But there was a post-car crash pain, no fractures noted, just pain. The two drugs given were Toradol and Robaxin. Robaxin, All right. What is is
1: a muscle relaxant?
0: What does it break down to? I'm not sure. I think it's amitriptyline. Well, in any event, he he drives away and is involved in a one-car crash with a plaintiff's car, and the the person he hits has extensive injuries. The emergency physician is sued. Mm-hmm. On a third-party theory, third-party liability, mm-hmm. in that he knew or should have known this patient, because of the medications, w- opposed a threat to self or others. What do you think the argument was in the defense argument in this case?
1: The defense. The defense. How are you
0: going to defend the doc?
1: Well, maybe the doc they're going to claim that uh, these medications don't, order since, uh, don't uh, affect your thorium or your ability to make judgments or drive a car.
0: Exactly. And what saved their butt in this case was good nursing notes, which said patient awake, patient alert, talking normally, functioning normally. He's given his discharge instructions and understood them, and he's discharged home.
1: Yeah, but maybe the the Robaxin hadn't kicked in yet kind of thing. He's fine when he leaves, but he just got it, you know, a half hour before he uh, are, left.
0: Are you aware of literature, and this is where this case went, are you aware of literature that says that uh, Toradol and Robaxin alter the sensorium
1: so that one cannot function? I think, you know, had I been given some notice about this case, yeah, I, I would have probably looked it up because I, one of these quote-unquote muscle relaxants yeah is really not I mean they're all not, but they break down some of them break down into sedatives and i'm not I'm not quite sure whether this one is is one but i would not, I would think that they would not go after this emergency physician unless they had some evidence that it was because everybody knows that ketorolic is not going to be the issue, so it's the no. muscle relaxant and so I would be willing to make a bet that there is some literature that, that says that that drug is actually a sedative.
0: Well, at least as as best in this particular case, the expert against the emergency physician, they did not have an emergency physician, but the judge allowed a family practitioner from Chicago. How
1: about a toxicologist?
0: Well, there wasn't one in this case. And I think that that's I think that's the basis of why the jury said, Eh, we ain't going with that, and you can understand that that that's why the jury went in their favor. Very interesting case from this third-party liability. The person who brought the case was the one who uh, was uh, injured by this man, uh, not the, compl- the not the patient themselves. All right, what a TPA case
1: for a stroke? Yes. Yes, sure.
0: Failure to use TPA for men with a stroke. Defense claims time had run on the issue and risks made use inappropriate. That's the case is when do you start the clock as to when a patient is having a complaint? Now, we all know that if you wake up with a stroke, nobody knows when the clock starts.
1: But people are getting TPA for that now.
0: Well, I understand that, but there's no literature base to defend that. Well,
1: not in terms of randomized trials or not, but I think that they're claiming literature that shows these patients are not at increased risk and that they may be getting some benefit. So there's more and more I see written about these wake-up strokes.
0: The uh, patient in this case, and we're talking about Arizona here, was only 35 years of age. Wow. Went to West Valley Hospital in 2009 with complaints of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, spinal and shoulder pain, which had lasted for three days. Pain scale was 8 out of 10. Oxygen saturation was normal. Temp was normal. Uh, he was given Zofran to take away his nausea and actually felt better. Was going to be discharged home. And he had other medical problems. He had problems with alcohol and a few other things. But then proceeded to stroke out. In the ER? In the ER. So what do you think? Is it, it, I mean, the, he's finished what's going on. He came in with findings. Now he's got more findings. When does it begin and when does it end? I think it's a very difficult case to know what to do. Yeah, but the, some of the
1: things that you read off there, diarrhea, that's, I heard that that's not really consistent with the, a stroke. I don't think so either. And uh, uh, vomiting, well vomiting might be consistent with a bleed in your head, but it's not associated with an ischemic stroke that I'm particularly uh, aware of. So basically, but I guess I would be concerned that if this guy's stroking right in front of me, that this is somehow related to the reason he's in the emergency department in the first place. Mm. And if he's in the ER in the first place, there's been some preceding symptomatology that's going on, in in this case, days. Yeah, days days well you know so they get after him because they didn't give him tpa yeah and they said they it's a lost opportunity
0: lost opportunity fellow. exactly you're getting good at this lingo rick you've really picked it all up now the lost <laughs> listen,
1: opportunity listen even a monkey could sitting here for uh, last eight years would pick this stuff up <laughs> you know
0: ah me we have the usual series of pe cases and things like that i'm not going to go through them because they become repetitious of what we uh, of what well, what's we the do? story
1: in this case here the tpa case oh yeah how about the outcome here
0: a defense verdict Felt that there was not, they did not know exactly when the uh, clock started. Uh, the reasonable physician would have not have intuited that this uh, person had a stroke. And uh, so it, it went, this one went in our direction. But you, as you know, it doesn't always have to happen that way. Um, and uh, we did pretty well on this one.
1: Well, even when they go in our favor, it doesn't mean that, Something did get screwed up, right? Right, exactly. Went in our favor, exactly. Uh, and so there it it there are things that can be learned in, even when we win. By the way,
0: <clears throat> the, it's it, while we're talking about TPA cases, as you know, in the last twenty years, the ten major studies published, which look at placebo against uh, some sort of thrombolytic agent. There's only two of those 10 studies which are positive. The NINDS trial, if you believe the information, mm-hmm. and then ECAS-3, say there's about a 7% difference in the two groups. Uh, the NINDS trial would say it's 10 to 11% between the two groups. But they were looking at something very specific, which was sided lesions, essentially all cortical or subcortical stroke kind of problems. Here's a case, but we've, we've somehow been able to, at least in the court system, able to make the leap to any kind of stroke that appears anywhere. Posterior fossa. Posterior fossa. And I do, I'm not aware that we have any, any literature that says posterior fossa strokes are improved with uh, TPA. I don't know not the study. That I,
1: not that I know of.
0: I haven't seen the study. Here's a here is a failure to diagnose impending vertibo-basilar stroke, misreading of CT scan and MRI alleged. Man suffers paralysis, vision loss, inability to swallow, and the number on this is big. This is a big number, and here's the the worst part of it. What he really has is a Count of Monte Cristo syndrome, the locked-in syndrome where the only thing he can do is look up. He can't even look side to side. That's what he's left with. Can you imagine being locked in so all you could do is look up? And the rest of his cortex, you know, they have brainwaves off of that that are perfectly fine. I mean, it's a horrible thing.
1: And the allegation here is this person should have had thrombolytic therapy.
0: Thrombolytic therapy. And of course, you bring in experts from everywhere. This and another thing, and uh, again, the jury was swayed by the idea that, uh, well, could it really hurt? Yes. Yes, it could, but they were convinced enough to award nine million dollars on this sucker. And if I'd been the emergency doc in this case, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have given the drug. I probably wouldn't even have spoken to the family about getting the drug since there is nothing, no literature base to defend us giving that drug.
1: Well, it doesn't honestly matter. Once the outcome becomes horrible, they're going to say, "Is there a mistake committed here?
0: Yeah. God, oh my God. You know, I I read this case and it just drives me crazy because how many times are we going to get a case that we think absolutely posterior fossa, and and somebody's going to say we should have given TPA. It's just frightening to me. But I don't know. All right. Well, Rick, uh, Rick give it's... Give me another one. <clears throat> you want another you have, case? You got another one? Yeah, I do. I got a bunch. I <laughs> got a bunch of them. <clears throat> Let me get the Pick the best out one.
1: the cream at the a crop there, Chief.
0: You'll like this one. If you're a little boy and you got a lower abdominal pain, what is it till proven otherwise?
1: It's appendicitis. Or Testicular torsion.
0: Exactly. Failure to diagnose torsion uh, testicle in a teenager leads to a loss of the testicle. Who cares? Yeah. Well, (laughs) the defendant claims testing showed no evidence of torsion. Now, what do we mean by no evidence of torsion? Well, this kid comes in, he's 14. He's taken to a very respected hospital in Michigan. Very big.
1: Named after some kind of car company?
0: Well, not that one. But your your hospital. But but another one. And it's very, very prestigious. And at the time that they saw the child, all testing was normal. The emergency physician and a resident got blood. Radiology testing was performed, which means an ultrasound. And at that time, it was normal. So what do you think happens?
1: They sent him home. They
0: sent him home. Now,
1: I think... the diagnosis of who knows what. Who knows what. Stomach flu.
0: Well, it could be stomach Stomach flu. flu. But, uh, and now, the plaintiff was seen by his pediatrician almost a month later for his annual checkup. And at that time, he said he thought he was kicked in the groin. Now, I don't know about you, Rick. I know when I've been kicked in the groin or in my testicle, this kid says, well, I think I was kicked in the groin. He had another immediate pain. He went to the emergency room 24 hours later. So this is coming and going here. Coming and going. Went 24 hours later. And at that time they had to remove the right testicle. So they went after the emergency doc saying, you should have known it was a torsing, detorsing testicle on the first visit and called in urology and have them pex down the testicle. What do you think about that, about that claim?
1: Well, that's a bit of a leap. You know, we don't have, it's easy to Monday morning quote about this, back this stuff, but we don't know, you know, uh, was there any abdominal tenderness, uh, was there any uh, vomiting that had come on suddenly, that had come on gradually, had he had it before, all of those nuances that would help decide this case are not in this This, summary.
0: This case, uh, it looks at really one issue. If you've got a kid who's detorsed, torsed and detorsed, or that's in your differential, should you have him talk to somebody, see somebody about it?
1: Yeah, I mean obviously the answer to that would be yes, but yes. we don't even know that whether it was in the differential We
0: have no idea or not. And fortunately the jury agreed with the doctor that he was he came in sick, went home well.
1: A typical case, very typical
0: case. Went home and retorsed, and there was. So, Rick, that catches us up on a, well, at least starts to catch us up on our, our cases. How is that?
1: You know, uh, is it wine time there?
0: It is wine time. Wine time. And we've got a very interesting wine that I want to talk about. Again, we're back to Napa because Napa's had so many great, they've had two or three great years. And. We've already talked about the fact that their prices are way overstated, all that kind of stuff. But there are two I want to mention. One we've mentioned before on this show, but the, this is the 2013 Plump Jack Winery. Plump Jack. Cabernet Sauvignon. They're from Oakville, California. And this is talking serious level wine. I mean, Parker is really moved toward thinking the better California wines are every bit the equal of the french wines and he's basically come out and said that and and said you know this french domination of wine bunch of crap he said this is as good as anything so i point out plump jack and the last one i'd point out is pride mountain vineyards and pride mountain is again cabernet the cabernet franc they're both in napa and sonoma and you can get a world-class wine i mean That's what he said. This is a world-class wine, he says. This is sixty bucks a bottle. Do you want a? You want, you know, a a great wine from Europe at eight hundred, or that we talked last month about uh, Screaming Eagle, which is a great California wine, but it ain't worth twenty-five hundred bucks a bottle. Sixty bucks a bottle, world-class wine, and that's out of Parker, who I consider to be one of the great wine masters of the world.
1: Hey, listen, before we sign off here. Did you, um, during all of those cases, mention any of the cases specifically by name in terms of the, uh, you know, uh, X versus Y kind of thing? No, I did not. Because my poor sister would just have a stroke if she had to get every one of those cases and get the proper citation. So I'm telling you right now, if for some reason one of you wants the specific citation in those cases, you just email us, wrbucata at gmail.com, and we'll get them for you, but Otherwise, don't look for those references in our notes.
0: Yeah, I, I think we've we've come to the point now where we're convinced that we don't need to terrorize anybody by having their name mentioned on uh, wrist management. No, I meant the, or... uh,
1: this is the plaintiff's name. This is, right. You know, the, yeah, no, we've been, we've I think we've become very good about I, that. Although I, I hope that this posterior fossa stroke business doesn't kind of, the, these two issues are are these wake-up strokes and the posterior fossa strokes. To the extent that there's any more of those cases, people are going to want to know about uh, the case that you just cited. Yes,
0: I know. Anyway, this is the end of another successful year, December issue, 2014. Rick, it's been a pleasure again this year doing the cases I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy.
1: I sit at your feet.
0: Well, having said that, bye-bye for now.
1: Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. (laughs) Hey. <laughs>